This episode of Hearsay is sponsored by the Wheels of Justice, a partnership against cancer, benefiting the Children's Colorado Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders. For more information, visit wheelsofjusticecycling.org. What do gun regulations and Colorado's open meetings law have in common? They're both issues and cases coming soon to a Supreme Court docket near you. Colorado's High Court kicked off a new session of oral arguments in September. I talked with Sherman and Howard member Chris Jackson about a few of the cases that Colorado's legal community is watching this session. In the new session's first week of arguments, the court heard a group of cases that could either have a wide impact on the state's open meetings law or very little. Another case that hasn't been scheduled for arguments yet challenges a high-capacity gun magazine ban that passed in 2013. This is Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. I'm Julia Cardi. In John Doe's v. Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, the court agreed to decide whether the department is a state public body that is subject to Colorado's open meetings law. It heard oral arguments with two other related cases against the Colorado Medical Board. Running through all three cases is a policy the CDPHE implemented in order to have criteria for referring physicians to the Colorado Medical Board for investigation, prompted by a group of physicians who seem to have unusually high rates of certifying patients for medical marijuana. The department adopted the policy without any public meetings or hearings. And in the pair of cases against the Colorado Medical Board, Physicians James Boland and Scott McLaughlin said subpoenas issued by the board to investigate their practices as a result of referrals from the CDPHE under the policy should be void because the policy was adopted illegally. The cases sound like they could set a significant precedent if the court exempts, or doesn't, a whole government department from the open meetings law. But even though the Supreme Court agreed to decide whether the department as a whole is subject to the law, that question doesn't seem to quite match what the two sides are actually arguing about. The John Doe's, a group of physicians, say the CDPHE is subject to the open meetings law. But they aren't trying to argue that every time the department does something it has to be public, which is what the question the Supreme Court agreed to hear could imply. During oral arguments, a few of the justices pointed out the snag. I'm a little concerned about the narrowness of the questions that are presented to us, which seem to be, in fact, untethered from the policy altogether. Um, They are whether the Court of Appeals correctly held that an entire state agency, such as the CDPHE, cannot be a state public body under the open meetings law, and whether the Court of Appeals correctly held that the department's referral is not a final agency action subject to judicial review. Neither of those questions really gets at whether the policy itself violated the open meetings law or whether the policy itself violated the APA. That's Justice Monica Marquez asking the John Doe's attorney, Carmen Decker, about it. Then Justice Melissa Hart returned to the issue later when Solicitor General Eric Olson was at the podium. It is true that one could imagine a policy-making body of a state agency that was something separate than a formally constituted body. The, the statute suggests that you would have, you could have a policy-making body that wasn't formally constituted, so that you could say it's not that the entire state agency is, but this policy-making body or group of people 
should have done their work subject to open meetings law. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. So the problem here is sort of the question presented. I asked Chris Jackson about how the court might approach trying to reconcile the gap. Do you think this discrepancy could present a problem for the Supreme Court when they're trying to decide this? Or do you think even with the broad question of whether department, the department is subject to the OML, the court could still limit its decision to just the policymaking process in dispute here? Practically speaking, uh, the court could pretty much decide whichever questions it wants, whichever questions it feels it needs to answer in order to resolve the dispute. But it's something that you definitely see the justices um, grappling with and trying to figure out, you know, what's the right thing to do here. I think that a lot of different components come into play. I obviously don't have an inside view of it, but I think one of the big things that the court would want to consider is the fairness of it. So if there was a question that everybody essentially realized was part of the case, not just the parties in the case, but also people who follow the court who might want to file an amicus brief or something like that. If everybody is kind of aware that there's one issue that the court needs to decide, even if it's not technically under a question presented, I think you could argue that it's fair for the court to go ahead and answer that question because no one's caught by surprise. But there's at least an argument, I think, in this case that if the court granted cert on whether the department's referral, like their particular referrals of particular physicians to the medical board, if they're deciding that question, but then they want to go on to talk about a policy the department adopted about referrals, that may be too far too far away from the question presented. And so I I think that's exactly what the justices were grappling with, is is this sort of fairly encapsulated by what we said we were going to answer? You know, one argument for the court limiting its decision to the particular policymaking process in dispute is the idea of um, what precedent could it set if they decide to to exempt an entire agency from the open meetings law. And, you know, the the John Doe's side argues that doing that would create a pretty big loophole in the open meetings law. Um, Kind of that that slippery slope type type argument we tend to see a lot. What do you think the implications would be? What kind of precedent do you think it would set if the court did decide to make a decision about the Department of Public Health and Environment as a whole and decide to exempt the whole thing. On the one hand, it seems odd to say that an open meetings law doesn't cover an entire department and a department could find creative ways to get around the open meetings law by saying, oh, we're just acting as an entire department and that's not subject to the open meetings law. The other point, which I think is one that that may get lost in a lot of coverage, but the government makes uh, and does a very good job of making is that the department as a whole has hundreds or thousands of employees. They're just doing their business every single day. And it doesn't really make sense to say that, you know, two employees talking over the water cooler about a particular issue is an open meetings law that needs to be formally noticed. That's just kind of kind of a crazy idea. Uh, and so what what the the John Doe's lawyers are saying is that we can try to limit this and say, well, it's only when the department is making a policy, is doing a policy making function. My gut instinct is that's probably not the right reading of the open meetings law, because then you've got this really difficult question of when does a department engage in policymaking? And then even what if there's a smaller body that everybody thought was subject to the open meetings law? Uh, If they're not engaging in policymaking in this 
narrow way that the petitioners want it to be read, um, you're, you're going to have sort of the law of unintended consequences is, is going to come into play. But all this isn't the only discrepancy in this group of three cases between what the court agreed to hear and what the court may actually decide in order to get at the heart of the disputes. In the waning minutes of two hours of oral arguments, Chief Justice Nathan Coates asked Sierra Ward, arguing for the Colorado Medical Board, whether the court should decide in the cases against the board if the policy violated the open meetings law. See, I have a question. I'd like to look at all of these cases for a second. Um, have you made any concession that this referral policy does violate the open meetings law? I think for purposes of the issue presented, this court is to assume that it did. Let me ask you about that then. I take it your answer means you do not think it's within the cert question, within our discretion to resolve the question based on whether we think there's a violation of the open records meeting. In the McLaughlin and the Bullen cases, no. That is the issue before you potentially in the John Doe's cases, but not, not in these cases. And what do you think about the relationship of these three? Do you think we should go ahead and decide the question narrowly as you read it posed here? if we were to decide that there has been no violation of the open meetings? And would there be any need for us to do so? Justice Marquez had a similar line of thinking, and she explained it a little bit more. Since the Court of Appeals actively decided in McLaughlin's case that the disputed policy violated the open meetings law, it seems the court has to address that question to decide the rest of the case. My concern is that in resolving these two cases, what we have now is, in McLaughlin, an affirmative ruling from the Court of Appeals that, in fact, the policy does violate the APA and the OML. And assuming without deciding in Boland doesn't get us around that affirmative ruling in McLaughlin. Chris said this is an example of just how difficult it can be to predict what the Supreme Court might do. Even if the decisions resolve the cases cleanly, there have been a lot of questions in this group of three cases about how the court should arrive at the answer. If the Supreme Court issued a decision that I think I think is in favor of the government, then it could essentially vacate the other two decisions and just say, Court of Appeals, here's our analysis and our guidance. Please redo this. And the Court of Appeals can choose to go down to the district court if it wants to. So that's one way it could handle it. It could also issue separate decisions in all three of the cases and only talk about the issues that are presented in each of those three cases, although, you know, the public reading all three together could get a sense of what the court thought about all the issues. Um, or it could decide them in sort of, I don't know if they're the same opinion, but at least three related opinions and kind of all address everything together. So you really do need to read all three decisions to understand what the Supreme Court is doing. So there, there are a lot of different things the court could do. And I think that because we don't even know what their views are on the Open Meetings Law or the Administrative Procedures Act, it's just really hard to know how it's going to come out. If I were to totally guess, I would think that at least all three of these decisions are going to come out on the same day. They may even be written by the same justice, so that there's kind of one person who's putting all these pieces together. Yeah, and I, I think what, what adds an extra layer of complexity to the whole thing and is the fact that the John Doe's case, which was ostensibly the really big one, the Court of Appeals decision came out after the two decisions in 
the Colorado Medical Board's cases. And that was something that when I was writing my story last week on the, the arguments, I had to kind of go back and look at the timing of everything to make sure that I understood why everything happened the way it did and think to myself, oh, okay, that's why these two Colorado Medical Board cases assumed that the law had been violated was because the John Doe's case hadn't come out yet. And so they were going off of the district court's decision to void the policy. There's a lot of moving pieces. And when you've got, you know, three different cases that are essentially talking about the same issues, but they're all being heard in different courts at different times, it can kind of be a mess. Um, that's one of the good things about having a Supreme Court is that you have one court of last resort that can say, okay, we're taking all of these together, we're going to hear them all together, and we're going to issue a decision or a series of decisions that is internally consistent so that everybody can know, you know, this is what the law in Colorado is. Another big case that could be heard this session doesn't have oral arguments scheduled yet, so we have a lot fewer clues about what details might catch the Supreme Court's attention the most but it deals with one of the most scrutinized topics in Colorado this year, gun regulations. It's not about a law passed this year, though. The case, Rocky Mountain Gun Owners v. Polis, challenges Colorado's high-capacity firearm magazine ban, which passed in 2013. The Court of Appeals released a decision in 2016 that used a test from a 1994 state Supreme Court case, Robertson v. City of Denver. The test analyzes whether a regulation that limits rights in Colorado to keep arms is a reasonable exercise of police power to protect health and safety. The Court of Appeals said the high-capacity ban is reasonable under that test. But to probably no one's surprise, there's been a lot of debate since the Robertson case about what reasonable means. Does the law just have to have a rational basis to pass constitutional muster? Does it have to stand up to strict scrutiny, the highest possible standard? Or will the state Supreme Court use a standard somewhere in between to analyze the high-capacity magazine ban? And the question in this one is for the Colorado Supreme Court that as a question of state law, what kind of review should this court be employing? Should it use strict scrutiny? Should it use intermediate scrutiny? Should it use a third option that at least some federal circuits have considered under the federal constitution. It's really an open question. And there isn't a lot of guidance for this kind of stuff because most of the time, I think constitutional rights are reviewed under strict scrutiny. But in the federal system, the way the US Supreme Court has looked at the Second Amendment, it just hasn't, um, it hasn't really been willing to use strict scrutiny. It's applied there's a little bit of a contested, you know, <laughs> there's a disagreement about what the Supreme Court is doing, but I think at least intermediate scrutiny and maybe something a little more forgiving than that. And so the Colorado Supreme Court has to look at all these different authorities, all these different approaches, and try to figure out what it thinks the right answer is for Colorado. The Supreme Court in the state said they would hear whether the Robertson decision should be overruled because of more recent federal Supreme Court decisions that interpret the Second Amendment, but that's a little bit um, strange because the federal Supreme Court decisions aren't binding on questions of state law unless there is some kind of federal constitutional implication, right? You know, besides the idea of whether a state law is, you know, unconstitutional on its face, um, does the you know does the state have to meet any kind of 
bar for showing, well, here's why we should deviate from a federal constitutional right? You know, is there anything specific that they have to show to have a reason for doing that? So the Colorado Supreme Court doesn't have to do anything to say we are going to interpret our law differently than an analogous federal law. Um, but as a practical matter, I haven't done you know any real research on this, but I think I think it's fair to say that most of the time, when state supreme courts get a state question, like a constitutional law question, and there's an analogous provision in the federal constitution, they'll generally follow what the U.S. Supreme Court has done. Sometimes they'll make little changes, but the overall framework about how they look at it, a particular issue, they're usually going to follow what the U.S. Supreme Court has done. And I think that's what the Colorado Supreme Court is asking the parties to brief here in its question presented when it's saying there's the Supreme Court, a U.S. Supreme Court case called McDonald, and they're saying, should we revisit our Robertson decision in light of that? You know, they're, they're realizing they're not required to, but here is, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court that has made a decision this is our chance to kind of re-examine it. The case Chris referred to is McDonald v. City of Chicago from 2010. The U.S. Supreme Court said state laws are also subject to scrutiny under the Second Amendment's individual right to keep arms because of the 14th Amendment's due process clause or the privileges or immunities clause. It's difficult to say what the Colorado Supreme Court would do with that. And, and like I said, it is it is interesting that they phrased it that way, but there's nothing that they have to show for them to go their own way. They can choose to just say, the federal constitution is great, this is different, and we think the answer should be different. And you, we've talked about how the state Supreme Court is really good at insulating itself from politics and rhetoric of the time. But um, even with that said, do you think that there is any reason to think or any argument that the state Supreme Court might take into account just all these mass shootings we've been seeing and all of the discussions about what kind of gun regulations are reasonable um, in whether they're looking at whether this high capacity magazine ban was reasonable police power? Yeah, and this is that's a good point. And it's an example of how some of the work that the courts do inevitably is going to bleed over into the political sphere. The court isn't deciding this case in a vacuum. And the Colorado law that prohibited large capacity magazines isn't in a vacuum either. Colorado has a, a pretty, I don't know what the right word is, not atrocious, but has has a, has a difficult history with gun violence. There are, you know, two very serious incidents that have taken place um, that that have been remembered nationwide. And and the large capacity magazine ban, I think, was directly the result of the Aurora Theater shooting. But there also is still a difference between a political question and a legal question. That a judge or a justice sitting on a court can be aware of that and consider that in applying a standard. But that's a different question than saying like. If I were a judge sitting in the state legislator, legislature, would I have voted yes or no for this particular bill? Those are still two very different questions. I'm Julia Cardi for Hearsay from Law Week, Colorado. For more episodes of our monthly podcast, follow us on SoundCloud or listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.